You're listening to World Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Of all the brigades of veterans who fought for the Union in the Civil War, none has become more famous than that formed by five regiments, the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana, and the 24th Michigan, more famously known as the Iron Brigade. And in the Iron Brigade's storied career, no moment was more crucial than its stand on July 1, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg. Today we'll talk with Lance Hertigan, author of Those Damned Black Hats, the Iron Brigade, in the Gettysburg Campaign, on Civil War Talk Radio. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this cold January Friday afternoon from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university or reflecting its opinions, nor will my guests be doing the same. As always, everyone's uh, doing their own thing here. We'll be talking in just a few minutes about uh, a key moment at the Battle of Gettysburg and one of the key units that fought there. Uh, First, some uh, the usual administrative duties, a uh, always... Heartfelt thank you to those who've donated to the show. Uh, donations can be sent to the PayPal address civilwartr at aol.com. And those are always welcome. We will be uh, doing a show again, another live show next week, uh, January 23rd, I believe it is. Uh, and then we may have several weeks of uh, repeat shows due to the interruption of real life in the form of hiring searches taking place here at East Carolina University. Uh, As the acting department chair, I have to uh, participate in these searches and interview the candidates for uh, positions that we have here periodically. And the candidates, one of the things they have to do is give a job talk. Anyone in academia uh, listening to this show has his or her blood run cold at the sound of those two words together, job talk, whether you remember giving your own in front of a strange department, hoping they would be impressed enough to hire you, or whether you're in a department and you uh, have to listen to uh, uh, one after another as each candidate comes and presents uh, presents his or her research, increasingly obscure and arcane on something you don't quite understand or care about. Uh, The job talk is a fearsome ritual of of academic hiring, and as uh, it by current role, I have to attend all of them, 
and they take place at 3 in the afternoon, which is when we uh, otherwise would be doing the show. So I will have to do some rerun shows as we get into the hiring season here in January and February. It is a rough time to be not... uh, It is good that we're hiring folks here at East Carolina. We have two openings this year in the history department. But uh, it's a matter of time. By the time you listen to this, if you download it a week or two later, maybe those will have been suspended. We don't know. These are rough economic times, not just at ECU or North Carolina, but across the country, indeed across the world. We're we're struggling these days. And there are all kinds of uh, pressures Still, hopefully, uh, everyone can spare a moment or two to think about uh, other important causes that deserve your your time and and even money, such as uh, the Civil War Preservation Trust and its ongoing efforts to keep Walmart from building a a new uh, store on the battlefield where the Battle of the Wilderness was fought. Uh, With such a background, it, it would be most unfitting to, uh, unseemly would be the word, to suggest perhaps also to take your mind off economic troubles, you could buy a copy of uh, my most recent book, uh, Did Lincoln Own Slaves and Other Frequently Asked Questions About Abraham Lincoln. So I will not make that suggestion today. Uh, we'll have to reserve uh, our funds for other things, perhaps indeed our, our guest's book, which we'll get to in just a few moments here. Um, a reminder, if, if you don't want to buy the book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves, uh, come out and uh, at least say hello if I'm coming anywhere near your area to, uh, uh, to talk about uh, Lincoln in the, this, the bicentennial year of Lincoln's birth, 2009. The Lincoln Bicentennial Tour, uh, in which I go from place to place uh, hawking the book, well, actually not doing that. These are Most of them are academic talks about something serious, but... Uh, you're welcome to go to the nearest bookstore afterwards and buy the book. Uh, it starts at Redlands, California at the A.K. Smiley Public Library and Lincoln Shrine on February 12th, Lincoln's birthday. Uh, contact the library there for uh, tickets to that uh, annual Watchhorn Dinner and Lincoln Lecture. I will be in Gross Point, Michigan at the Gross Point Historical Society on March 18th. Austin, Texas at the Civil War Roundtable there on March 19th. Leesburg, Virginia, for another Civil War roundtable gathering on April 14th, and then to Harvard, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, that's the the uh, Cambridge in Massachusetts. The famous story of the Cambridge lady who goes to London and buys a ticket, and, uh, train ticket for Cambridge, and then says that's Cambridge, England, uh, the the other one in her view. Uh, April 25th will be part of a three-day, 24, 25, 26, I think, uh, three-day extravaganza of Lincoln. Uh, David Herbert Donald will be there, Doris Kearns Goodwin, James McPherson. Uh, lots of interesting people will be talking about Lincoln and the Civil War. Highly recommended event. Somehow I got onto the guest list, uh, the speaker list, too, so I'll be happy to be there uh, speaking on April 25th. Uh, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable. May 12th, Richmond, Virginia, Civil War Roundtable. And then after a uh, refreshing summer break, October 22nd, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, in the Dorsey Pender chapter of the Civil War Roundtable. So I hope uh, uh, many listeners can come out, uh, say hello, uh, shake hands, tell me what you like and don't like on the show. Always 
eager for your feedback in person or by email. Well, last week I did all the talking, giving a wrap-up on the stories of 2008 in the Lincoln world. Uh, as happens, whether I'm here alone or not, time runs out too fast, and we ended on the melancholy note of the story of uh, uh, the Lincoln world's late uh, friend and companion and benefactor, John Y. Simon, uh, former professor at Southern Illinois University and most notably editor of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, John Y. Simon died in 2008 uh, after various health problems, but certainly complicated by his struggle with his former employer, the university, that uh, suspended him based on charges that he was not given an opportunity fairly to answer. Um, I don't know much more than that and won't go into the details of that sordid story, uh, but it's hard to imagine uh, anyone suggesting that the university behaved in a, uh, a fair or gracious manner toward uh, this man who had so many friends and did so much for the historical world. Uh, certainly, his successors at the Grant Papers have spoken uh, their own view by withdrawing the papers project from Southern Illinois University and moving it to Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, uh, quite a distance uh, in every way from uh, from Southern Illinois, but uh, perhaps an indication of, of what they think of the that university's treatment of, of John Y. Simon. Uh, he will be greatly missed. He was one of the first people I interviewed on this program uh, in December of 2004. He was a delightful interview. His description of the what was then the brand new Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois, remains perhaps my favorite segment in, in all five years of Civil War talk radio. I had to ask one question, what do you think of the library? And I could just put the phone on speaker, put my hands behind my head, and let John Y. go on a rant for the next 15 minutes describing with great verve and humor his uh, feelings about that, that museum and how they uh, had constructed their exhibits. I didn't necessarily agree with everything he said, but it was uh, wonderful to listen to and uh, I'm glad we still have that his voice to hear, but uh, but he is gone, and that didn't quite come clear as we ran out of time last week. And I, I wanted to to make very clear that's how that that sad ending of that story. Well, we'll move on now to uh, new books that are always coming out, and in particular, uh, this week we have a new book to review. I'm not even sure if it's actually out yet. Let's ask the author. Lance J. Hurdigan. Lance, are you with us today? I am there. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, cold. You said it's cold in North Carolina. It It's cold. Uh, I'm a, a Michigan man. Yes, and I know. So <laughs> if I say cold, I don't mean North Carolina cold, like 50 degrees, and they're wearing parkas to class. Um, but it was it was 20 when we got up this morning, and that's, oh, yes, that's nippy. 20 below. Now, that's cold. I mean, I, I put on, like, a jacket over my blazer. Uh, I didn't wear a hat or gloves today. It wasn't that cold. 20 is all right. But it's warming up. I think the cold is going your way. So I guess we're getting it. You, where are you located? I'm uh, in Wisconsin, uh, just a little south of Madison, which is the center, lower center part of the state. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's Then you're cold, definitely. It's, yes. Uh, I talked to my friends and family up in Michigan, and they've been telling me it hasn't broken double digits in a few days. Uh, yeah, we were, cold. we were below zero for three days. That's cold. That, that I, I'm 
I, I have no story. You don't miss that, that right? <laughs> I don't miss that one bit. My children are constantly saying, uh, "Well, we're going to Michigan this weekend," and they're, "Is there going to be snow? Is it going to be cold? We can't wait." Uh, <laughs> I say, "You'll enjoy it for the first fifteen minutes, and then it's like, can we go home now? Uh, let's go back to North Carolina, where it's pleasant, and uh, we'll be running around in short pants at soccer practice tomorrow afternoon." Same, same, same. Uh, it weakens but, you to be that far south, anyway. It does, it does. I tell you, I, I need the bracing atmosphere. I'll, I'll look forward to a, a quick <laughs> visit back to the Wolverine State. Well, Lance, I've enjoyed very much reading uh, those damned black hats, the Iron Brigade and the Gettysburg campaign. Well, thank uh, the you. Cop- very kind. The copy I have is stamped, uh, not for sale, unedited reading copy. Is the final copy uh, yet available? Yes, for her? Uh, it's about. It's been out about two months. And, okay. Uh, so it should be available pretty much around the country. Um, there weren't a lot of changes, just the usual kind inside. <laughs> and, of course, we added photographs and other things that were, I think the pages that she, the copy you had were were blank in some cases. And, there's, there's uh, a, so we there's did a, that. Okay, there are a ton of photographs, but there are some blank pages as well. Yeah. So. Well, let me let me back up a little bit and ask: uh, um, Is this what you do all the time, or do you have a day? No, job? actually, uh, I'm a, uh, a lecturer in history at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Ah. Uh, but I'm semi-retired, so I'm not. I only do a class or two now and then. I'm doing two online classes this spring semester, uh, and. Um, in the other, my other part of my job is I'm the historical consultant for the Museum of the Upper Middle West, which opened uh, in Wisconsin just uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, it's a big, huge uh, museum that covers the the states around the Great Lakes and their role in the Civil War. And uh, so I've been working on that for about four years. Now, does that museum focus on the Civil War years or, or the states? No, it's just the Civil War, but it covers only the states of. Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, uh, Illinois, and Minnesota, and their role, and it deals pretty much with uh, with their contributions. Uh, it, you know, because there were no battles in that area except for the Sioux uprising in 1862, uh, it doesn't get a lot of attention. But the three quarters of a million soldiers came out of those six states uh, for the Civil War and fought, you know, in almost every campaign in every area of the of the country during the four years. So it's been a lot of fun to do that. You you learn a lot when you work with museums, and I was interested in your comments about John Simon and the Lincoln Museum because, of course, you always deal with with a whole <laughs> wide spectrum of issues when you put the museum together. You, you do. I mean, I, I spent nine years in at a different Lincoln right, Museum. At, uh, at the Lincoln Museum at what, Fort Wayne, right? That's right. And, and you're absolutely right. There are all kinds of issues you deal with when presenting history through the museum format that don't always come up in, in, when you're writing a book. No, but, no. Did you have any of those that, that stick in your mind at this museum? Uh, well, you always have you uh, you always have issue. We ended up talking, I think, much more about the home front than actual battles, uh, though the battles are not neglected. And so, you know, how are the people affected and that were left behind, uh, wives of families and, and uh, individuals? We got some pretty powerful people. Uh, uh, that were involved, including Lincoln and <laughs> some others, Grant, and so uh, so we touch on that, and then we touch on the broader issues of uh, of just the war and how the the war stimulated the industrial revolution in these states and pushed technology. So that doesn't sound very exciting, but it in when we when you actually sit and look at it, it gets pretty interesting. 
I, I think it's a very interesting subject. It's something I've, I've toyed with, haven't written anything about, but I, I wonder how, uh, if Lincoln, for example, ha- had lived, how he would have dealt with the economic changes, his philosophy of you know, everyone, individual, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. How would that work in a world of factories? Yeah, I think, you know, and what's happening, of course, in the upper middle west, being, being from Michigan, you, you probably get a little of this, is that, you know, the industrial revolution was just beginning to really catch up in, in these states. And like for Wisconsin, it was like the number one wheat producing state in the country. And Michigan was producing everything from salt to, to wood to whatever. And yet they had very small population bases. Um, so it, it, it's what, what's interesting is to watch how fast they they mobilize for the war and deal with it and how they speculate in the war uh, and you know wheat was selling for something like fifty cents a bushel and by the end of the war it was four dollars a bushel uh, and McCormick's Reaper was was helping produce so th- those issues come up uh, again as I say it's a it's a it's a museum it's a more interpretive than the display of artifacts but it is certainly I think uh, an interesting look well, where what to see it. It, is the museum in Madison? No, it's actually in a in a town called Kenosha, which is right on the state line between Milwaukee and Chicago. Yes, I've, I've driven through it on the way yeah, to. I used to live in Chicago, and and uh, so it's uh, we we have a in a good population area, and very. they draw very well. It's right on the Lake Michigan shoreline. It's a brand new two and a half story high block square facility, and as I said, the main gallery opened in September. Well, that I, I will. Next time I'm in Chicago, I will see if I can convince my... Me too, and please call, and I'll be happy to, to walk you through it. That sounds very interesting. To tie that to uh, your book, you quote several times uh, John Gibbon describing how the soldiers uh, had to learn to uh, change from being free, independent citizens to develop the, the habit of obedience. Right. And... That seems to me to tie into the Industrial Revolution, the difference between being a, a farmer on your own farm and working in someone else's factory requires a habit of obedience. I think it also requires a, the, the gift for organization. Um, when, when those changes begin to occur, you know, people really have to work together. It's not, now, you could do barn raisings and that kind of thing, but when you work in a factory, they really learn to, 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 to cooperate to produce a, a, an end result. And Gibbon, I think, is, touches on that when he talks about the development of, of these frisky Western volunteers uh, who are, you know, uh, an independent breed because you don't come to rough states like Wisconsin, Iowa, and even Illinois and Minnesota and Michigan and, and, uh, and Indiana uh, without a sense of, of independence. Uh, you tend, I think, to be adventurous to a degree. Uh, you, you tend to be looking for something. And, of course, Gibbon then had to take this all and, and channel it. Uh, John Gibbon, by the way, is the first, second commander of the of the Western Brigade and is the one who uh, ordered the, the famous black hats uh, for those five regiments, ultimately. Well, let's, let's talk about that story uh, of the Iron Brigade. When, uh, when, when I was growing up reading about the Civil War in the 1960s, I read Alan Nolan's famous... Right. Uh, Book and that really was one of the early ones that triggered my interest. Um, let me start with that. What else is left to say? Didn't uh, uh, well, Alan's book is fifty years old, uh, and in fact, uh, when he was writing the book, I was in college and 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 was interested in the war at that time myself. And 
provided some material on the Iron Brigade that he ended up using, and then he was very gracious and gave me some material he had collected, and we really had a really long friendship uh, that until his passing, you know, this past year. Lance, uh, let me interrupt you, if, if I may, um, and, and suggest we take a short break at this point. Sure. Um, we'll take a brief break here on Civil War Talk Radio. Come back and talk with Lance Hurtigan about the Iron Brigade on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Lance J. Herdigan, author of Those Damned Black Hats, The Iron Brigade in the Gettysburg Campaign. And we had a interesting talk about a new museum in uh, southern Wisconsin, just across the Illinois border, devoted to the Civil War era in the Midwestern, upper Midwestern states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota, Iowa, and so on. Uh, and it was so interesting, we barely got to the Iron Brigade, which is what we're uh, here to talk about. So, Lance, the, uh, the Iron Brigade, like other volunteer brigades, is formed of uh, four, initially four, later five regiments. Um, who were those regiments? How yeah, was the it regiments, Give, uh, us, give the, us the background. The first four regiments were the 2nd, 6th, 7th Wisconsin, and the 19th Indiana. Uh, they were joined uh, after the Battle of Antietam in 1862 by the 24th Michigan. Uh, the brigade was the only all-Western, uh, now Western meaning Midwestern, brigade that fought in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and they were famous for uh, for their headgear, which is the 1858 model Hardy hat, uh, a tall black felt affair uh, that they were issued uh, in 1862 when their state gray militia uniforms wore out. I've always uh, the, the soldiers believed that they got those hats because nobody wanted them. Um, 
they were the part of the you know the quartermaster stores, and everybody wanted those snappy little kepis that George McClellan loved so much. And as a result of it, uh, they grumbled when they got these hats, these big felt affairs. But but they liked the way they looked, and it soon became known as the Black Hat Brigade because of that this very distinctive of headgear, and of course that led to the Confederates at Gettysburg yelling, those are those damned black hats again. It's the Army of the Potomac. So that's where that comes from. Alan Nolan wrote about it originally in his book in 1961, and uh, it's, uh, it's a, you know, a great history of the brigade. I, uh, I, I think when anybody wants to read about the brigade, they should go there as well. Uh, my own interest is different, though, and I'm more concerned with how uh, the Civil War impacted on on individual soldiers and communities. Well, that that shows in, in what you've written here that yes. it's it's not just uh, which company maneuvered to which flank. Uh, but no, you and that's what's different on my, on my bar. You know, see, I, I should say this: I'm an old UPI reporter, and I covered Vietnam in my young days as a reporter, and I was very much influenced uh, by that that period of history and. And I tend to be distrustful of official records and statements, and I tend to look for look from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And I, I try to humanize the story. I guess that's because of, of, of my interest in it. Well, and let me ask you this, because uh, frequently this seems to happen with modern journalism when they're reporting, uh, not just on war but on any events, that almost all the questions at some point are some variation of, how did that make you feel? Um, sometimes you want to know. Uh, as we, you and I talk here uh, right. this past week, there was a dramatic plane crash in the Hudson River from which, fortunately, uh, everyone was rescued. And I suppose a reporter asking a, a passenger, how did you feel? I'd be interested to know. I can imagine. Yeah, I don't, I don't you know. know, a lot of ways, a reporter's job is much like a historian's. Yes. In other words, you look at the evidence, except you know, in, in the historical, historical sense, it's, it's more distant. Um, and you can't always get the answers you're really looking for, but then you evaluate the material and make judgments on it and try to try to connect it all. Uh, I'm convinced that we know more about the Battle of Gettysburg today <laughs> than any individual who fought there, because they only saw a piece of it. But if you can put together 45 pieces of, of significant action, you can get a, a sense of it. And I well, think that's what makes it interesting. I'd, I would agree. We certainly have a much broader knowledge base than anyone had. We don't have the same sensory knowledge base, though, perhaps. No, I, I think the difficulty is that we tend to not think in 19th century terms, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that you, you, have to, uh, you have to be careful of any you know, modern biases, I guess, that, that get into your writing. And we always like easy answers, and sometimes the answers aren't easy either. No, I think that's a, that's a very good point. Not, often the answers are not easy or accessible, and sometimes we do ask the the the, the question, the "How did you feel?" How the emotion question, when actually that may not be the most interesting question. Uh, so, yes, that's true. Uh, but but I, I, your book does not do that. It, it, as I read it, I thought it it balanced those things very well. well thank you. Um, there are some interesting. I mean, you have some some human interest stories. Uh, the uh, the father-in-law son-in-law story uh, you, you might share with us. I thought that was a good. good yes, thing. Howard Richardson was a young lieutenant who uh, who uh, courted the, the daughter of the colonel of the Seventh Wisconsin, and the colonel refused refused the uh, the match. 
because he thought his daughter was too young. And Holland Richardson and the young lady sort of eloped and got married secretly. And when the father-in-law, William Robinson, found out about it, he went looking for young Holland Richardson with a pistol. <laughs> but uh, but the, Robinson's wife had emptied the chambers, so he was not going to do any serious damage. They didn't. They were on, on very stiff terms for almost two years. Uh, and it wasn't until in the Wilderness Campaign of 1864 that that uh, Robinson and uh, Richardson reconciled. That's a that's a you know that's kind of a human story, isn't it? In in many ways, it, it is. I mean, I can imagine it would be difficult enough being uh, a junior officer in the Civil War without having to worry that your angry father-in-law commands the unit you're in or the next yeah, unit. He over. ended up Richardson actually was moved to staff uh, to a brigade staff because of that. Because um, everybody was sympathetic, you know, to both sides in that sort of touchy personal arrangement. Uh, Richardson was a good officer, uh, excellent officer, young man. He was an attorney from Ohio. Uh, was in Wisconsin when the war started at a place called Shipple Falls, which is way up in the central upper part of the Wisconsin. Recruited a company, uh, built a raft, floated down the Chippewa River to the Mississippi, and ultimately to Madison, where they enlisted. In the Seventh Wisconsin. Now, the the original regiments of the brigade you mentioned were the the Second Wisconsin, Sixth Wisconsin, Seventh Wisconsin, and Nineteenth Indiana. Indiana. Um, they fought at Antietam. Right. Then then uh, they were joined at that point by the Twenty Fourth Michigan, because and that they, was well. The, they were in four major battles in the space of three weeks. They were at a, a place called Bronner's Farm or Gainesville, uh, Second Bull Run, South Mountain and Antietam, uh, and were so reduced by that time, they lost half their soldiers. And when a fresh Western regiment came, given one of the fresh, one of the regiment of Westerners, and uh, asked McClellan for it, and when the 24th showed up, uh, they were attached to the Western Brigade. But they, the, you know, a regiment was supposed to be a thousand soldiers, and when Michigan soldiers arrived, uh, there were slightly more than a thousand in the in the four regiments across the parade ground from them, and it was a cool welcome. Because they outnumbered, or practically, well, they were fresh fish. You know, they were new. Um, <laughs> one soldier, they were called, the Michigan soldiers were called the feather bedders because they brought everything from home, including their feather beds. <laughs> uh, well, these were you know hardcore. These guys had seen seen a lot of action. And the Michigan guys were new, and uh, it was at Gettysburg that the 24th Michigan actually earned its its reputation and its real place in the in the pantheon of the Iron Brigade. I think. Well, you suggest that the regiments, to some degree, had their own character. Each regiment was. Yeah, they were all different. They certainly were. The Second Wisconsin was mainly formed out of militia companies in Wisconsin. And um, these are the, the uh, energetic young guys anxious for for advancement. Uh, most of the serious business types stepped back, and then they filled these militia companies with with young volunteers. And they went out and fought in the Battle of, of First Bull Run, uh, where they ran with the rest of them. They called it Bull's Run. I always got a kick out of that. And then the Sixth and Seventh were later regiments. Uh, uh, who came in, and, they, and these were like the second wave of, of volunteers out of Wisconsin, and these were serious young men, and you know, it looked like the war was going to go on, and they, 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 
they joined not so much for adventure, but because they they believed in the union and and all of the other things that drove them. And of course, the 19th Indiana went in that same period. They're in that second wave of of, of volunteers. So they, they they had very distinct personalities. The second was a little uh, a loud, boisterous, and uh, had uh, command situations. They, the sixth, uh, they always said, was more stately and marched to a different drum. And the seventh was uh, was a big, strapping uh, regiment of farm boys, and uh, and uh, they were quieter. And they said they were called the Huckleberries because they liked to talk about things to eat. <laughs> mm. so, so it goes on. Yeah, they had distinct personalities, and uh, and and their own little biases and rivalries within the regiments. And I was interested to learn there was, and one more, like the Fifth Beetle, there was one unofficial organization attached to the brigade, uh, at least in 1862, uh, the artillery. Yes. Yeah, Battery V, which is the 4th U.S. Artillery or a Regiment. It was stationed at uh, Utah, uh, Fort Floyd, and it was brought overland, and when it was assigned to the, to the, the Western Brigade, it was a regular Army battery, uh, but it was so reduced in numbers that they were allowed to recruit among the the regiments. So the the battery commander, who was John Gibbon, who later became the second commander of the of the brigade, uh, went around and literally recruited from uh, up to 125 to bring his roster up to 125. Uh, battery B was known uh, was a was a pretty you know well run tough outfit uh, and. Uh, had the highest casualty rates of any regular ever any battery in the Civil War because it was involved uh, heavily at, at Antietam and again at Gettysburg. So the battery w- was attached to the brigade, but as the uh, dedicated listeners of the program uh, must already know, the Army of the Potomac reorganized its artillery right just before Gettysburg and pulled all the batteries away from the individual brigades and centralized them. In a, uh, either in, at the corps level or in an army level, right? This is at, at a corps level. They were in the first uh, the first corps artillery brigade, I believe, is the way it was phrased. So they were close to the iron brigade, but no longer uh, a part of it. Not at Gettysburg, but they had fought through that that period of 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 the war. What happens? See, the, the iron brigade comes in, and, and they end up in in McDowell's first corps, and when. McClellan went to the went to Richmond. They were left behind at Fredericksburg, and uh, the, the the saving grace of the Iron Brigade, is, of course, is that they they had almost a year of training before they were put into combat, and it almost killed them because they were desperate to to show their metal, as they said, and looked for a fight. How could you go home and not you know have been in a battle? They were worried about that. Well, they didn't have to worry long. When they did get involved, they were heavily engaged right through the through Gettysburg, which pretty much ruined the battery, and not with the battery, but pretty much ruined the the, the brigade because well, of the heavy losses. Well, well, let's let's talk about that. They you said they fought the four uh, engagements in 1862. After the 24th Michigan joins them, they participate in the Chancellorsville campaign. Yeah, Fredericksburg uh, and Chancellorsville. Fredericksburg is is uh, uh, they're minorly engaged, and Chancellorsville they're at. They do a river crossing at Fredericksburg uh, as a kind of a fence in the in the Chancellorsville campaign, and then they come to Gettysburg. So the the 24th Michigan had been in limited action in two battles, and they didn't get their black hats till just before uh, the Gettysburg campaign kicked off. So when they went to 
went into Pennsylvania, all five regiments were wearing those famous hats that became such a, a, a mark of distinction for them. Now, the Battle of Gettysburg begins, uh, and again, listeners know know this story well, I'm sure, begins <laughs> uh, accidentally, more or less, with uh, uh, the A.P. Hill's Corps pushing toward the town of Gettysburg from the northwest and Union, uh, Union troops defending it, but not uh, uh, neither side expecting a major battle. But before too long, uh, there on McPherson's Ridge, you've got uh, the army, uh, the Iron Brigade showing up to to try to stop the first couple Confederate brigades who think they're occupying a ridge held by militia. Um, that's that's the first big engagement at Gettysburg. How, how did yeah, that go? The first infantry, real heavy infantry fighting at Gettysburg. And then, of course, uh, there's a lull uh, as the Confederate brigades pull back, and then the Confederate army really begins to mass uh, northwest and north of Gettysburg. Uh, and in the afternoon, there's some some units of the 11th Corps come through town and, so, and go north and, and to extend their line. Um, but in the end, of course, the Confederates come at them with with almost two thirds of their army. And um, that's the fighting in that afternoon on McPherson's Woods in the Herbst uh, Woodlot, as they like to call it. Uh, I think is the heaviest infantry fighting of the war. Um, and if you read the personal accounts in the book, you you get a sense of just how desperate that was. Uh, they were literally shooting at each other at at 90 feet in some places. Two dense lines that were were one moving forward, the 26th North Carolina moving forward against the 24th Michigan, and the 24th Michigan just bending backwards because they were flanked and. Uh, that fight goes on for a long period of time, and ultimately the Iron Brigade is driven from the ridge uh, through the town and then is reformed on Culp's Hill uh, the night of July 1st. They went into combat with roughly 1,880 men, and that night when they, when they did the rolls, they officially said that they had 670 left. Uh, in fact, uh, that number is probably... Low. I've got a quartermaster who said he fed less than 500 men on Culp's Hill in the brigade. So it was, a, it was just a horrific fight. And it pretty much wrecks the Iron Brigade thereafter. Uh, shortly after Gettysburg, there, they, uh, uh, a Pennsylvania regiment is attached to them, and ultimately they lose their Western identification. Well, let, let's stay with Gettysburg for a minute okay. here. And the... Um the fighting, it, it struck me uh, in your description, as you point out, that this they, they stand uh, literally 90 feet away, 30 yards, 40 yards away, uh, close enough to see one another clearly and, and, and fire away, not behind any sort of cover. I mean, they, they're, some well, of the they're fighting, in the woods, uh, but the woods wood. is a pasture lot. Mm-hmm. That means that all the shrubbery was you know, up to as far as, a, as cattle could reach. Uh, was cleared away, so you had trees, but not bushy trees. In other words, there's just the. the, the it's like a park, not yeah, like the wilderness. Like a park, and so they could see each other to a degree, and uh, of course the smoke quickly took care of that. Uh, that quickly a gully filled uh, with smoke where the Willoughby Run runs through. Uh, and if you go there today, you get a sense of that. It's it's kind of distorted by the road that they put in for the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that destroys the ground. And you sometimes, when you're reading the accounts, you're, you, they they don't quite jive. And I'm I'm convinced that the 
the roadway distorts uh, a little of the actual topography of it. But this is something that they just won't do later in the war. This, this no, it's close fighting. The Iron Brigade. The well, Iron what Brigade we're going to do is, you know, they had this frontier notion of a stand-up knockdown fight between two brave people, you know, two brave sides. But after Gettysburg, uh, the Iron Brigade always dug in every time they stopped in a in a situation that was threatening. They threw up earthworks and trenches and defensive positions because they they didn't know whether they would exist anymore. You know, the Iron Brigade was just about gone uh, after Gettysburg. Well, we're going to take another break at this point, sure. and we'll come back in just a few more minutes and talk again with Lance Hurtigan about the Iron Brigade on Civil War Talk Radio. When I was 12, my father was killed in an industrial accident at a vacant lot where he worked. My mother insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to get an education. So she took a job uh, waiting tables at a parking garage to support us. She worked double shifts, and on her break, she would pick me up from the highway on-ramp and drop me off at the big office building, and I'd spend hours and hours just reading books. I remember every Saturday we'd have breakfast at the parking garage. And I'd tell her what I had read. And her eyes would just light up. <laughs> because she knew I'd end up in college, not working at the vacant lot. Like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Lance J. Hurdigan, author of Those Damned Black Hats, The Iron Brigade in the Gettysburg Campaign. It's a very interesting account of this famous unit, the only all-Western brigade in the Army of the Potomac, and its uh, career through the Gettysburg Campaign leading up to its stand on July 1, 1863, when the five regiments from Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan uh, held off uh, a Confederate attack long enough to allow the rest of the army to arrive and, and stabilize the position and eventually lead to the Union victory at Gettysburg. Uh, Lance, there are lots of really interesting incidents that you talk about uh, on July 1st. Many of them are, are familiar ones, but it was interesting to see them uh, from the perspective you present. Um, the brigade is there, for example, when John Reynolds, the commander of First Corps, is killed. Uh, you, you raise, without really saying more about it, the possibility that he might have been shot by one of his own men. Is, yes, I always get in trouble with that. 
What do you think about that? I think it's a confusing situation. Uh, Reynolds rides close behind the second Wisconsin as it comes up, and when it crests uh, the ridge and starts down the other side, of course, they run into the Confederates who don't expect them. The Confederates volley and literally shoot down a third of the second Wisconsin. And in that flurry of, of bullets, uh, Reynolds is hit. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think the stories are too pat uh, about Reynolds. And, uh, and I think there's a, there's a Confederate uh, account of the second Mississippi, which is on the other side of the, the, the turnpike. And they said they saw a group of officers and fired into them. Uh, and that could have been Reynolds as well. And then there's, there's just dozens of stories of how Reynolds was killed, a sharpshooter, which I, I discount. I'm not so sure that in that flurry of bullets and that, that first explosive meeting of the two sides that, that he wasn't just shot accidentally by soldiers who were behind him or retreating, you know, had run out of the, out of the woods as the brigade went in. Well, apparently he was he was shot in the back of the right, head of his of his head, uh, and they claimed that he was turning and looking back when he was shot. And that's um, see, you're getting me into trouble here. Well, <laughs> I don't have any evidence of that other than uh, you know, as the confusion of uh, a lesson I learned as a young reporter is that the confusion of ex- of, of a, a violent event uh, sure colors uh, the way you remember it, and. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, I, I, I lay it out there. I, I, I mainly base it on the shots that were fired by the 2nd Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a frail read to hang it on, but it's, I just want to, to, to raise the question. And maybe somewhere somebody will find a, an account that is more definitive. They never took the bullet out of him, you know. he was. In other mm-hmm. words, they don't know what kind of bullet shot him. You know, was it one of those federal carving uh, as the Union cavalry fled from the woods and they shot back. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Well, that, that could... Uh... Reynolds is a, certainly becomes a dynamic figure at Gettysburg, though his, his relationship with the Iron Brigade was, was pretty ordinary up to that point, and it is after Reynolds gets shot that suddenly he becomes this theme, you know, the, the, the theme, the Black Knight of the Union. Uh, uh, throwing them back, and he certainly deserves all the credit uh, for deciding to fight there. But it wasn't as clean as, uh, you know, he was criticized by uh, other officers immediately after his death, saying that he shouldn't have fought there, he was too far forward, he, he was, you know, he was command of three corps, and what the heck's he doing uh, chasing a, a regiment into, you know, into the woods? I mean, as, as an individual, he should not have been so far forward. Yeah, I mean, that's something we see certainly in Civil War combat, that officers are often much farther forward than you'd expect, Stonewall yeah. Jackson being another example. I don't think it was an intentional shooting. Don't misunderstand. I don't think it was fragged, per se. I just think ah. in that flurry of of gunfire, uh, because uh, it, it, it was explosive and it was heavy, and, and they were, you know, the lines were not as neatly drawn as they show up on the maps. Mm-hmm. Now, the... Uh, the the sudden... you would pick out the thing that's going to get me in the most trouble, but that's all right. Well, that, that, that is indeed indeed my job here to read carefully between the lines. the The second Wisconsin, the seventh, the nineteenth Indiana, the twenty fourth Michigan are all on the line in the fight uh, we talked about last segment right. there on. Memphis they're they're the ones that that actually plunged over that ridge down into the valley where the Willoughby Run lives. The the sixth Wisconsin was held in reserve. 
and when Joe Davis's Confederate Brigade of Mississippi and I think in North Carolina troops as well broke uh, the 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 second Federal Brigade, which is made up of New Yorkers and Pennsylvanias, on the north side of the of the turnpike, the sixth went in and they they charged on the <clears throat> the unfinished railroad cut and captured a bunch of Confederates and uh, and threw back uh, the, the brigade and restored the Union line on that first fight in the morning. I wrote about that in another book and uh, that was published in 1990. I never see I never thought I was going to write about Gettysburg again. But after that book came out, people started to send me material. Uh, I was working at Carroll at the time, so I was kind of visible. And I soon started to get copies of letters and photographs and journals and newspaper clippings. And and I had all this material. And I, I, I didn't know, you know, I <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And a friend of mine said, well, you've got to write about Gettysburg or all that material will be lost. And those soldiers will not be remembered. They laid a terrible guilt trip on me. Wow. What was the name of the other book? The other book was called In the Bloody Railroad Cut uh, at Gettysburg. I wrote with William J. K. Badal. And it's pretty much the same type of story where we tried to find low-level accounts. We actually found 45 separate accounts of soldiers who survived the fighting in the railroad cut and wrote about it later. You know, it's an action that lasts about 10 minutes. I mean, there... At some point, and, and I've mentioned this on the show before, there, there's the risk of getting, you know, so far into the trenches uh, where you're just looking, as you say, a whole book about ten minutes of fighting. That that at some point people say, okay, that's, uh, you know, do we really need more about that? And week to week, I'm never sure what uh, quite what yeah, the, yeah. the covers will hold. But I'd say this book doesn't do that, uh, in my view. The Iron Brigade book really does. Uh, give give very satisfying tactical detail of the fighting, but it, Thank it you. puts it in a lot of context as well, and that makes it uh, a little more valuable to me, at least, uh, yeah, to I, think where they learned from. I, people always say, well, you're writing about the Iron Brigade all the time. Well, the, the answer to that is is that this is a pretty literate group of guys uh, of all the, all the regiments. They wrote a lot afterwards, and they never got a lot of attention because, of course, they were in the Midwest during the Great Reunion movements and and as a result of it, a lot of this material has never been looked at by historians. And and I always use I think when I when I write about the Iron Brigade, I tend to like to to to, to look at big big pictures through a, a narrow lens, I guess, for want mm-hmm. of a better description. In other words, it's about the Iron Brigade's fight at Gettysburg, but it's also the, the the story of combat cohesiveness, and it's also the story about the relationship of soldiers, and it's also the how they defined courage and things like that, and I think those are lessons that we we can still use today. Well, that that's uh, I'm very sympathetic to that. It's exactly what I tried to do when I wrote about the Army of the Ohio to right. you, you, write you about a big picture through a narrow lens. Aspect of it, exactly. These are just real people, you know, and sometimes they get to be cardboard figures, as you're well aware. Now, after the battle, uh, I, I one of the interesting sections is where you talk about, uh, after the fighting, I should say, uh, the, the Iron Brigade is pushed back off McPherson's Ridge to Seminary Ridge, then they retreat from there through the town of Gettysburg up to Cemetery Hill, ultimately ending up on Culp's Hill on the, the back end of the fish hook, uh, the Union line. But the, the some of the men end up in Gettysburg in the hospitals there, and right. they spend the whole 
battle there, half the time they're behind Confederate lines. Yeah, they're actually prisoners, or, or wounded prisoners, I guess, for want of their prisoners of, a, of a, the, the makeshift hospitals that have been thrown together. Right. And they, they don't actually move. They just, the Confederates overrun them, then they get re-uncaptured when the Union comes back. That's right. Uh, I thought that's an interesting look. I found I found a number of accounts, and, and when I I began to look at it, it's hard to imagine these guys are roaming around town, you know, talking to Confederates and and watching what's going on uh, all during this whole fight during the battle. Yeah, I mean that's what was interesting to me is that they're not secured in any way. No, not really. Under guard, they were, you know, where there were guards placed over groups of. of, of Lightly wounded prisoners, and they were being moved from one place to another. But the ones who had been who had been fairly hit, in other words, hit solidly and were bandaged up, they tended to just let them alone. Of course, because they were no longer combat effective, and they were not armed, and uh, so they got a chance to look at the Confederates behind the Confederate lines. And there's a, a series of incidents, if you recall, about that Confederate officer who comes into a cellar full of wounded and ends up giving some uh, some punch to. A Union soldier before he gives a punch to a wounded Confederate soldier, and I found that and you know that that special respect that those guys had for each other, even though they were on different sides. Although at the same time, without there's a risk of romanticizing things. You also have an anecdote of uh, uh, a Confederate soldier who's been fighting and overrun by the Union, and and he. He says, you know, don't kill me, Yank. Uh, he's a helpless, surrendering soldier now on the ground. And the Yank says, uh, you know, all hell can't save you. And, and yeah, but the, you remember them. the Confederate had just shot uh, the, this guy's messmate. And he was unloaded, of course, and trying to surrender, and the guy wouldn't let him. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that in the heat of combat, it, it went on as well. I don't want to romanticize and say they're all friends and shaking hands, because they certainly weren't. And... Um, you know, there you always. Know, it's easy to to get one sided on it, but there were good boys on both sides, and that's what gets what always strikes me is this, is mm-hmm. the sadness and the tragic thing that that had to happen. Now, after the battle, um, the you stress how badly beaten up the Army of the Potomac is. Uh, it's it's hard enough to. It, losing a battle is hard, but winning a battle is not all that much easier on the, the winning army. And, I don't think uh, so either. <laughs> the, the, the pursuit uh, that follows does not go particularly fast. And then, then you mentioned, we started to mention in the previous section, the, the reconstitution of the Iron Brigade. They get a new regiment added. Yeah. That didn't go well at all. No, it's a 100-day regiment, and they were added to, to flesh them out. And they, were, they lasted about three weeks, and then they were mustered out. But there began to be a series of regiments that were added to the brigade during that time. There was also a flood of, before the Overland Campaign in 64, there was a flood of, uh, of drafted and bounty men that reached the Army. And in fact, those... Wisconsin regiments were back up to almost 1,000 soldiers, uh, but they were not the same regiments. And, you know, no. and, you know what I mean. There were only two no. They, these are different men, certainly. Veterans, and then the rest were all new, and they never fought as well. I don't think. No, after, after Gettysburg, clearly the Iron Brigade is not what it was. Um, oh. I wish we had more time to talk about what happens next, but as happens every week, too soon, we're out of time. Oh. Uh, well, thank you. It's been very kind. 
Well, thank you for being on. Uh, your book, Those Damned Black Hats, The Iron Brigade and the Gettysburg Campaign, uh, is available and recommended to Civil War Talk Radio listeners. Uh, Lance J. Hurtigan is the author. Thanks for being on, Lance. And thank listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. 